Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We're in a rapidly changing interest rate environment. For the first time in years, we've just had our ninth consecutive increase in interest rates. So if you're a mortgage holder, it's a very important time to pay attention. But if you're not a mortgage holder and maybe you want your first home soon or your first investment property, you'll still learn from this episode. Today on the podcast, John Pigeon chats with Rachel Kroon from Sphere Home Loans. Sphere is on our panel of trusted mortgage brokers and they've got a team dedicated just to help my millennial money listeners. There's a link in the show notes if you want to chat with Sphere Home Loans. Otherwise, we can't do this Thursday show without the help of Global X, our Thursday show partner. A lot of us invest in shares. A lot of us have core portfolios and satellite portfolios. Global X offers a range of portfolios that you can plug into your boring vanilla core portfolio to get access to thematic investing all around the world. Global X is a great partner. We've got some more campfire chats coming up in the very near future to help you get invested. And we can't do this podcast without Global X. There's also a link in the show notes if you want more information. All right, I'll leave you with it. Over to John Pigeon and Rachel Kroon from Sphere Home Loans answering your questions from the Facebook group. Rachel, coming back for another episode. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Now, wild out there at the moment, isn't it? It is wild. Eight consecutive rises. So that's a huge change in the market. Totally. And and I think like, yeah, as a, a young person out there, and, and I'm like big daddy here talking, it's not the first time that we've had interest rate rises over the journey. But so, so for the first time investors or first time homeowners, it's coming as a bit of a shock. And it's been such a sharp increase, hasn't it? As you said, eight increases in what, 12 months? It is. I've never seen eight consecutive rises before. Mm. So it is, it is tough for people. Yeah. So I suppose we need to give a little bit of context. Um, average interest rates over the last hundred years maybe six, seven percent on average, would you say? Yeah, probably five to six. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're hitting where it probably should be anyway. It's just that we we come from a very low base of like two percent or even less. Yeah. We've had some really low rates, especially over the last few years. Mm. And it's been great. We've been able to cash in and, and hopefully save a bit more money. And, and that savings is now uh, being maybe put towards the extra mortgage <laughs> repayments. But uh, we, we, we need to be strategic in everything that we do. So yeah, let's. Um, th- there's been some unbelievable listener questions on the Facebook group. Uh, unfortunately, we won't get through all of them, but there's some amazing uh, questions out there and, and people really think hard about this stuff, don't they? They do. There's some great questions. I just had a breeze through. There's some really... Uh, Big, a big variety of questions. Mm, absolutely. All right. So let's uh, let's kick it off. Amelia says, if you're working towards a house deposit, what are some good habits to get into? For someone who's brand new to the housing market and trying to figure out what they need, would love to have some tips on good things to get into place that helps in the lead up to talking to a mortgage broker and moving towards a house. So before you answer that one, Rach, 
when is a good time to start talking to a mortgage broker? I think when you start your savings journey for your house, I think it's a great time just to have a five-minute chat with a mortgage broker just to really answer some of these questions that Amelia's asking. So mm. while I'm saving my deposit, what else should I be doing? Um, I think most brokers would have a five-minute chat with you just to you know put you on the right track to make sure you're doing the right things in that, in that saving journey. Yeah, okay. So if I'm sitting here with a good savings plan and saying, right, in, in 12 months time, I reckon I can see myself getting into the market. Would I have a chat now or am I going to get on that journey a bit and have 20 grand up my sleeve and then have a chat? I would be more than happy to talk to someone who is starting the journey. Yep. Um, for five minutes of my time, it would be great to say, you know what, while you are saving, let's make sure you get your credit cards in order and make sure you're also working at, um, you know, keeping your accounts clean and making sure you're putting that in a savings account. Are you putting in a savings account just in your name? Sure. Um, or do you have that in your parents' name? Because that might cause you some problems down the track. So yeah. let's, before you even start your journey, let's make sure we get you on the right track and make sure you're doing the right things now. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. So that organically is a tip for Amelia. Uh, what are some other things that we can be doing um, along the journey? Well, I think while you're saving for a deposit, especially especially in that last six months before you're ready to buy, it's great to look at your account conduct and your spending. So, you know, those little overdraws and things like, or a little paying your credit card a week late might not seem like a big deal, but the banks use like a system which is open banking. So they can have a look at everything that you do both on your, in your transactional accounts and your, and your credit cards and things like that. So it's just worth, worthwhile to have good financial habits while you are saving for a deposit. Mm, that's great because when I first started investing all those years ago, the internet wasn't a massive thing. So we would have to provide uh, hard copy statements that are scanned and emailed and, and we gave them what we needed to, but th they can actually go in and check themselves, can't they? They can and it's changed a lot in the last few years. So some first home buyers that come in, especially when they come in with their parents, their parents are shocked at the information <laughs> that, a, um, that the banks can actually see for these clients without even getting a statement. Yeah. Okay. No, great. And... Talk to us maybe about uh, getting loans in the meantime, um, good or bad loans. Like the, the, they might yeah. be sitting there and saying, well, 12 months time, I'm getting into my property, but won't matter if I go and get myself a, a credit card now or, 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 or a sneaky little car loan. Yeah. One of the, um, one of the big misconceptions I think people have is that they should get credit um, now if they're going to get a home loan. And I disagree with that. I don't think you should be going out and getting short-term credit in the lead up to getting a home loan. I think good savings and good income is what is what you're going to do to get a home loan. Things like uh, short-term lenders, afterpay, zip pay, I think that they all uh, impact negatively on your credit score at the time. And it might not be a big deal, but if it was a close application and you had you know, four consumer inquiries in the last few months before your application, that may have a negative impact. So I don't think going out out and getting after pay and zip pay just before you're about to get a home loan is a great idea. Mm, fair enough. Okay. Good, good advice there. So uh, I suppose similar, similar line to Amelia's question in relation to uh, Jonah says, what should we be doing now if you plan to apply for an interest only investment mortgage in 12 months? So similar lines to Amelia, but we're talking investment as opposed to owner-occupier maybe. Does, does the landscape change? Is there anything different that we need to be doing? Well, there's no real difference in the, I guess, the credit assessment if you're applying for an investment loan 
rather than a home loan. Um, but if you already have an interest-only loan now or it's coming up to principal and interest and you want to roll it back to interest-only, um, you need to be able to be prepared for a complete credit decision again. So you do need to have the income and everything to be able to afford that loan at interest-only again, which funnily enough, you need a little bit more income to cover an interest-only loan than you do a principal and interest loan, even though the repayments are less. Yeah, that's that's a weird concept, isn't it? Because you often get knocked back when you are P&I and then you apply to a go interest only and the bank says, no, you actually can't afford it, although yeah. the repayments are less. And look, that's actually really common at the moment because because rates have gone up and you know lending guidelines have gotten a little bit tighter. When clients are coming back to say, hey, I've been on interest only for five years and that's come to an end and I want to go interest only again, it's really important to know that that's a complete credit assessment. Mm. And one of the reasons that it is harder to get an interest-only loan than a principal and interest loan is if you do a 30-year loan term, you're actually paying a certain amount off 30 years. But if you do a 30 loan term with five years interest only, that will revert to a 25-year loan term afterwards. And the repayments for that are higher than a 30-year loan term. So you need to be able to cover that 25-year loan term. Um, but at the assessment rate. So okay. it can be tougher. Yeah. Okay. So a side question to that then, I've got an interest only loan. I've had five years. Now I go and apply for an extra interest only period with that same lender. Uh, they say, no, you, you, you knock back. Can I go and refinance to another lender and start a 30 year term over there? You can, as long as you meet their lending guidelines. And I actually had a client yesterday call to say, hey, my interest only term's up and I want to I want to extend. And for that particular bank that we put them with five years ago, they didn't service. And that's because their incomes changed as a little bit more over time and things that that particular bank we put them with didn't look as favourably upon. So to get that five years interest only again, we are going to have to move them to a new bank. Mm. Um, and it might be because of lending guidelines. It could be because of rate. Sometimes another bank has a lower interest only rate than the bank that you're with. So a lot of things change in that five years that you're interest only. So it's a good mm. time to reset and recheck. Yeah, absolutely. And it might sound as though we're kicking the can down the road by getting all these interest-only loans and and renewing another 30-year term. But I suppose the concept there is, well, if you've got your principal place, your own mortgage, you want to be paying down that as a priority and you may have your investment properties interest only. And, and Glenn and I had this chat the other day and uh, I don't know if you tuned into that, but he's very much P&I, principal and interest on all of his properties and that's great. He hasn't got a wife and three kids and, <laughs> and a dog and <laughs> all those things. He can dedicate money towards that. But a lot of people can't. So where do you focus your money? And generally it's towards what I call that bad debt against your own mortgage. That's right. Well, my opinion on this, and it really is just my opinion and how I like to run my own finances is that I set the repayments for principal and interest on all my investment properties. I think you should pay principal and interest, but I redirect the difference between interest only and principal and interest into my owner occupied mortgage. Yes. So let's say that could be, um, you know, you might have the interest only payment is $1,200, principal and interest would be $2,100. So I'd put $700 for that month into my home loan. So I'm right. still paying it, but I'm paying it into the most tax effective environment. I actually don't agree with people just paying interest only and not having any sort of buffer put into their home loan to cover things when they do change. Yeah. And, and that's great advice right there is to feel as though you're paying P&I on all properties, but you're actually just portioning that money towards your, your mortgage. Yeah, that's great. I was in my downtime the other day, I was just floating around with some mortgage repayments um, um, on some different scenarios. And you would know more than, than me on this, but 
when you've got, say, a, a 300, 400K mortgage uh, and you look at the principal amount in the early years of that term, the principal isn't that great. So if you've got an interest-only term versus P&I on a 300K loan, for example, your interest rate, and, and we'll talk to this in a minute, the interest rate on interest-only will maybe a half a percent even more higher than what you can get for principal and interest. So when you work compare the two together, you may be actually more beneficial by paying principal and interest um, anyway. Yeah, we would always give clients both options. So here's what the repayments would be, principal and interest. Mm. Here's what they would be interested in. And here's the rate for both. Um, two years ago, the rate was quite a lot different. And so we had more clients than ever paying principal and interest. Now it's, for most lenders, it's really only sort of 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5. Yeah. So investors are still uh, probably favouring interest only if they've got a mortgage. If they've got a mortgage, yeah, sure. Okay, good stuff. Taylor. Taylor says, looking at buying our first home ASAP, I've been in contact with a broker since August last year and had to follow him up several times, but he's just so slow. Should I really expect it to take this long to get a pre-approval? Now, Rachel, I know you very well. You're not in the game of bagging other mortgage brokers, <laughs> but what's your protocol on this and, and how long should we expect for pre-approval to be coming through? Well, if you say you've been in contact since August, and sometimes I'm in contact with a client for a year before they buy, and is it just having a chat or have you put the paperwork in for an application? Because they're different things. So I would actually ask that broker just to set a process with you and say, hey, I might have missed the process. Could you let me know exactly what this process is and what the timeframes are? If he's been talking to you since August and answering questions, for him, it might be just a I thought we were working out your borrowing capacity and we haven't put an application in yet. So, but if you'd have put a full application in, no, there is no way it should have taken since August. So I would say just to ask him to set some clear timeframes with you of what you're doing and how long those processes are going to take. Yeah. And unfortunately in business, uh, business owners can pick and choose who they work with. Yeah. So if you've got a easy go lucky, get the get the documents ready, really good with communication, be on the front foot, be proactive, then much easier to work with than someone that's not. Now, I'm not saying that <laughs> Taylor's the opposite here, but uh, understand that it's a two-way street. But traditionally, a pre-approval uh, and self-employed might be a little bit more complicated and, and different structures, et cetera. But would we think that a pre-approval should be anywhere from one to three weeks, is that At fair? the most. And you should know. So if we if you came to me today and said, look, this is the, I'd like a pre-approval and you gave me all of your information, um, generally we'd come back to you within three business days with a recommendation and that might have a number of lenders mm. and there'd be different rates for those lenders, different loan sizes because they'd lend you a different amounts, but there'd also be a time frame. So they would be, hey, this bank's going to take two days, but there are banks that take 23 days at the yes. moment. So that could be a factor in who you choose. So I think it's important to know, have you chosen a bank that does take a really long time? But if you don't know the answer to those questions, I'd definitely just ask a really clear and concise email saying, can you please answer these dot points? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's really hard to know what to ask and what the expectations are. So yeah. if, if Taylor's gone and, and been on the front foot and, and asked the questions and, and um, given some expectations from, from their end, then, yeah, it may be time to move on yeah. to, uh, to, a, to a new broker. <laughs> yeah, so average time for us for documents in until pre-approval is always under two weeks. Right. Um, the average is probably five days if in the current climate, unless you've chosen a specific lender that takes a long time. Yeah. And and folks, that's the power of having a mortgage broker right there 
is understanding that everyone, everyone's or all banks have different timeframes, um, different policies, different servicing amounts, different lending, different appreciations for different industries, all those sort of things. So that's where a mortgage broker can navigate through that. And, and as you can tell, I'm 100% pro mortgage broker, uh, but getting the right mortgage broker in your corner is, is absolutely key. Exactly. So Kate has an amazing question. I'd be interested to hear from a broker in their thoughts about clients using a buyer's agent to purchase a property. Have they seen positive and negative experiences? Can they share any insights? Right. You're a, a long-time investor yourself. Um, you've, uh, you've built a, a nice portfolio personally without uh, talking out of school, but you also deal with a lot of investors. Talk to us about the buyer's agent. Yes. Yeah, so I had a conversation with a builder at my house the other day that he drew a comparison with this because he much prefers to deal with clients that are using a designer mm-hmm. because for him, it takes all of the, the work out of saying, explaining all the things of like the builder doesn't really say where things go. He builds the home. Yep. So the designer actually comes in and plans with the person building and then he goes in and does his job. So from a mortgage broker, obviously we're going to love it when people deal with the buyer's agent because they're doing a lot of the work with the client. They're helping them find the property that they want and um, they're negotiating those rates and things that clients don't do every day. Mm-hmm. So from our perspective, it's great when people use a, um, a buyer's agent, but it's obviously if it's in it's part of their plan. If they're not comfortable to go and negotiate, if they want somebody to find the property or if they're buying in an area they're not really competent in, like it's great to use a buyer's agent. Yeah, okay. So does it not provide for a broker, does it does it not mean there's another cog in the wheel that can potentially complicate things? You, you're saying that there's more more often than not a clear strategy because it's the, the strategy. Agents in there. So it's also um, part of a team. So the team is your like, sometimes it's always your mortgage broker, your conveyancer, um, but having the buyer's agent in there, it's another person in your team acting on your behalf. Mm. Um, I'm not saying whether I would recommend to use one or not, but for the buyers that we use that use them, we're having a really great experience. Okay, and and. Um, for the record, have you used a buyer's agent in the past for any of your properties as such? I have. I have used you for a well, property purchase <laughs> That was before. a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, no, and and I, used, I used a buyer's agent even though I feel like I'm quite experienced in this field because I was buying in an area I didn't know. Yeah, okay. So that that's, um, I suppose, an extension from Kate's question is well, why would you use a buyer's agent? Now, you're more than capable to go and find your own property. That's right. So it's probably one of two things. One, as you mentioned, maybe a location that I haven't done the research on and a buyer's agent can identify that. But two is you appreciate your own time as a business owner. I do. And it probably would have costed me a lot more time out of my business to go up and travel up to Queensland and do all of those things. And especially even bidding at the auction is something that I'm I'm not particularly comfortable with. Yes. Okay. Yep. Cool. Now, Anonymous says... And this is elephant in the room stuff, Rach. How is a mortgage broker actually paid and how is this payment affecting me? All I ever hear is they get paid by the bank. However, generally speaking, you can potentially get same deal off same bank. I see value in working with the mortgage broker for alleviating hassle and shopping around for me. But what costs am I as an individual seeing or not seeing? Is there no free lunch? That is a great question. So you are you are right. You could go to the bank and probably get the same rate. Could you? You could. Like yeah. Not always, but you could go and negotiate the same rate. But where the where the but you're going to be dealing with a member of staff at that bank that's going to process your loan that gets paid a salary. Mm-hmm. So the bank, rather than paying their own staff 
and their own salaries, they pay my business and I get paid on settlement. Yeah. So it's still the same cost factor for the bank. And in a lot of cases, it's actually the cheaper acquisition channel for the bank because they are only paying for settled clients. So we get paid rather than the banks paying their own staff. Um, so that's where the, the free lunch is. They're, they're, they're paying us to do that, to do that loan. Um, but what you do get for free is choice and you get someone to negotiate for you. But I'm certainly not saying you couldn't negotiate the same rate. But if you had four months ago gone to a bank and you probably could have negotiated the rate that your broker did at the time, would that banker have reviewed that loan and reduced your rate where I'm sure the broker would have gone in those last four rate rises, hey, new business is half a percent less than existing clients now. I'm going to make sure that my client that I did four months ago gets that new rate. Yes. So yeah. that's, I guess that's where the, the gap would be. So it's not, a broker doesn't just look after you when they place the loan. A good broker is going to look after you throughout your loan term. Should. Should. Yes. And I know that not everybody does, but the vast majority of brokers that I know do. Do that. Yeah. Okay. This is me personally. I, I would only work with a mortgage broker who has a, an investment portfolio themselves. Uh, yeah. Now, mum and dad own or occupy a home, that's fine. That's pretty, well, not cookie cutter, but it's common, right? For for building an investment portfolio, I want someone on the ground as a broker that is building a portfolio themselves or has built one because I, I, I can't uh, put enough emphasis on experience of being in the trenches yourself yeah. as a, uh, a broker, as an investment specialist, et cetera. Yeah, I, w- I would probably want the same. Mm. All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to get a bit deeper into the, the world of lending out there as we see it today and how we can navigate our way through it. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Krithi says, how does being a permanent full-time, part-time and self-employed change your ability to borrow and interest rates slash other costs? Also, how does taking a career break or jumping between jobs affect borrowing ability and corresponding rates? So a lot to unpack there. And I'll add another thing to this is not so much the career break, but maternity leave. 
Now, I know that things have changed out there for someone going on maternity leave um, as to how the banks view that as opposed to, okay, can we take into account their servicing or are we knowing that they're going to go back to work? So we'll factor that in. Yeah. So I might start with, I'll take self-employed out to first start answering that question because I think that that would be an easy separation. So let's talk about permanent full-time, part-time and career break. So if you take a career break and let's let's take more uh, maternity leave out. So if you just decide to go traveling for 12 months, you have a great time and you come back and you start working part-time or full-time, most lenders, not all, but most lenders will take your income straight away. Um, if you're doing a 95% loan, if you're doing a really high LVR and it's in mortgage insurance territory, there's another layer to that. So some of the mortgage insurers want to see that you've had the same job for 12 months or the same industry for two years without breaks. So if you're doing a high LVR loan, you might need to have 12 months in your job or have two years without a break. But if you're doing an average sort of loan size and you're not having high mortgage insurance involved, most banks will take short-term, full or part-time. Okay. So for those visiting the library for the first time, you're going to pay lenders mortgage insurance if you have to borrow more than 80% of the purchase price. That's right. So, But if you were working casually that might change things because there's some variances in that. And some banks will um, want 12 months casual, some will want six, and some will take as low as three. Okay. Um, and that's where I guess if you were going to be casual, a few different banks would come into play. Now, for maternity leave, that's changed a lot in the last few years. Maternity leave's gotten a lot easier. And some banks will let you use your return to work income when you're on maternity leave. You don't even have to go back yet. Um, but you, they do want to see that you've got the cash in the bank or some savings to cover your income until you go back to work. Right. That's an interesting one and and quite a game changer, isn't it? It is. It's been great. So it's a win for the women out there. It is. What if I never go back to work as as the woman on maternity leave um, or the man? It could be the man. Yeah. So if, if I never go back to work, And I've got that loan approved. I'm good as long as I can repay the mortgage. Yeah. Well, the credit assessment is a moment in time. So Mm. as long as you just say you had planned to go back to work and that loan got approved and you ended up changing your mind, let's say you had a a child that you you couldn't go back to work for some reason, the bank doesn't come back and reassess you. But you may struggle to pay that if you didn't go back to work. But then if um, you don't need to go back and get reassessed though. So partner got a a pay rise, for example, or something happened and and it's like, oh. And you're living the life. I'm I'm done. (laughs) Work's over. Yeah, awesome. Um, Okay, so just before you expand on that, uh, the bank doesn't need to see when you're going back to work and it doesn't need to see a a contract as such that says you need to go back at this time? Well, generally they will, yes. So if you're going on maternity leave, you do need to say when you're going back to work. Right. Um, But I'm fully aware and so is the bank that that could change. Yes. Um, But you need to um, have that at the time you borrow. You need to say, hey, we're going back in six months' time. Um, But if that were to be 12 months' time, that's fine. You don't need to go back and reassess at the time. Love it. Um, For I mean, I have a lot of investor clients and this maternity leave policy changes have helped a lot of my clients because people do, when they've got time off work, look to buy an investment property. So they don't want to wait until they go back before they buy it. Yeah, I get so many people come to me and say, look, I want to buy a house before we start having children. And and whilst there's many things that affect that in terms of, okay, kids cost you money and uh, there's time off work that we may or may not have X amount of maternity leave or cash funds, but that really changes the dynamics of that. 
Yeah. And um, just before we move on, I just want to, I didn't, I have to circle back to self-employed. So self-employed is a little different and banks vary greatly in their self-employed policies. So your average policy is that you need to be self-employed for two years and have two years full financials. Some will take one year financials. Some banks do some crazy things where they say, hey, if you've been a plumber for the last five years earning a hundred grand a year and you go and become a self-employed plumber tomorrow, Mm. they will still take your payslip income. Because you're same industry? Same industry and I ca- you could always go back to those wages. So there's always – and that might not be at 95% OVR. That might have to be a low percentage lend to get that done. But there are always different banks that do things that the others don't. Yeah. So self-employed more than anything, it's go to a great broker and work out all your options before you take a no. Yeah, that's great. And, and you mentioned about the two years. There are some lenders that will take 12 months? Most of them want two years self-employed, but they will take 12 months financials. Okay. So if you've had a a rubbish start to your business for the first 12 months, um, then the second year will will generally cut it. Uh, But if you've only been working 12 months as self-employed, then it's harder. Yeah, it it is hard if you've only had 12 months self-employed because let's say you start self-employed in January, you don't get a full months, a full 12 months financials until the following July when you do your tax return. So generally they want a full year's tax return. So if you started in say June, you'd probably get a chance of getting it done quicker than someone that started in January because they want to see that year's tax return. Okay. There there you go. For all all those budding uh, entrepreneurs out there wanting to go self-employed, if you had the choice, you would start in May or June, not wait till the end of the year. Yeah, and if you are planning to borrow, please tell your accountant. Yes. As you kick off the ground. Yeah, okay. And and when we say self-employed, does it matter the entity, like whether you set up as a company or a sole trader? It doesn't. It matters what bank you may use because banks have different rules. Some banks won't take company profit unless you distribute it to yourself. Okay. And some will. So you always want to make sure you've got the income either in the company or coming to you personally. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Kerry, could they share, they as in Rachel, the ins and outs of adding renovation loans to a mortgage or how to use equity for renovation of a PPOR, principal place of residence? Basically, what are our options for funding a major upgrade that should improve the value of the home? Yeah, so if you're doing a major renovation and let's say you're knocking out walls, adding rooms and doing an extension, generally what the bank would like to see is a fixed price contract with a builder and that's to protect two things. It's to protect you to make sure that you get enough money to finish and it's to protect the bank and their security because they want to make sure that that house gets finished with the money that they're giving you. Um, And some people really struggle with the fact they need a fixed price contract, Um, but it's only if you're doing major structural renovations. Now, if you're going to do a kitchen and three bathrooms um, and you want to borrow 100000 for renovation, generally you don't need to have a fixed price contract because you're not knocking out walls and doing things that affect the structure of the home. So the big word with renovations, is it a structural improvement or is it a cosmetic improvement? Right. Okay. And I would imagine that it would vary a lot if you had a third-party builder or you were doing your own renovation or your own build yourself as um, owner-builder. That's right. So if you um you so if you're going to do a major constructional structural sorry re- renovation, the bank will want a fixed price contract from a builder. They actually won't generally won't let you do it yourself. Right. Even though you've got your own builder 
certificate, so to speak? So that's an owner-builder loan, which is different. So some banks have what's called an owner-builder policy. So you can go and get your certificate to say that, you know, you know what you're doing and you can get this house finished, which is what the bank wants, both for their security and for you. So they're going to cover to make sure, you know what, you know what you're doing. Here's the money, but they might only lend a little bit less of a percentage than if you used a licensed builder. Yeah. Okay. So... The numbers are the same, aren't they? You, you're basically pulling the equity. Let's say it is a cosmetic reno of a bathroom yep. and a kitchen and there's nothing structural there other than the internal um, existing dwelling. We're saying, okay, we've got a house, the value, the bank comes in and says it's worth a million dollars, you've got a loan of 500000 will lend up to 80% of its value. So a million dollars times 80% is 800 minus the 500. There's 300K potential equity that's available, but we need to check your servicing and see how your income stacks up against that. Yeah. So any credit decision, so borrowing more money, obviously there's equity. So yes, the valuation sticks up and there's income. So they're going to check with your pay slips that you can afford your loan with the new loan on top. Yeah. So I've done a renovation a renovation loan recently that wasn't structural, but it was still $250,000. Yes. So with landscaping, kitchens and a few bathrooms, it can creep up a lot. And the bank was happy to give that as cash out. Um, we just needed to break it down for them to say, hey, this is much is for landscaping, this is for the kitchen, this is for bathrooms. Yeah. Okay. And, and stating the complete obvious, when you get cash out, you've got to pay that cash back. You right? do, you <laughs> so. do. Um, one of the benefits though actually about using the fixed price contract is the bank will lend on the end value. So let's right. say you go out and get your house valued and it is that million dollars and you already owe 800, but you want to borrow 100 for a renovation. Well, you don't have that much equity in that home because it, you know you go to 80%, it's 800. But if you get a fixed price contract from a builder, the bank will do what's called a to be completed valuation because they've got a contract there from a builder saying this is what it's going to look like when we're finished. A valuer will go out and value it as if complete. And let's say now it's worth 1.2. So the bank's happy to lend 80% of that valuation Mm. and they're going to control that process. They're going to do progress draws to the builder and your loan will progressively get bigger like if you were building a new home. So they're, they're not going to say to you, halfway through the build, look, we don't think it's going to be worth what we said at the start, so we're not going to lend you any more money. No, you'll get an unconditional approval Mm. at the start using the to be completed valuation. And also, if once that's formally approved, let's say something changes with your job, there's not a reassessment. Sure. As long as you don't redo that loan. Okay. No, that's great. All right. Let's talk about the current climate. Matthew says, how much have you seen borrowing capacity fall? Two years ago, we were able to get massive loans, now looking to refinance to pay off a parental loan, and now we can't meet the requirements in such a common situation, not only Matthew's in. Uh, This is so common at the moment. I am having at least five conversations a day with customers, existing customers of mine saying, I'm really, really sorry, but you can't borrow as much as what you could borrow six months ago or 12 months ago. And it, it is large. Um, we, we, there's been eight rate rises. So to put it into perspective, that's, you know, it's a, it's a good two or three percent. So that's um, the assessment rate has gone up as much. So there was a buyer that I had that could borrow for, this is for a first home, they were pre-approved for an $800,000 loan. That's gone down to six fifty. Wow. That's a big difference. Yes. I feel like first home buyers have been impacted pretty heavily of what they can borrow. 
However, the people who have been hit the hardest are investors because they're living that extra 3% across everything they hold. The whole portfolio. The whole portfolio. And um, if they are paying interest only on a chunk of that portfolio, obviously you've got that bigger repayment that you've got to cover like we discussed earlier. Yeah, and and just on that point, we've got a situation where you might have two or three investment properties. They're all currently interest only and they come off that interest-only term and the bank says, well, you need to pay P&I now. So you could potentially have be having to pay P&I on the three investment properties plus your owner OCK all at one time. That is a reality for a lot of people right now. And if it hasn't hit them yet, it may hit them in that next 12 months. Yes. And I think if it is going to be something that you're concerned about, reach out to a broker now and have a chat, see what you can do to roll that over. So there might be another rate rise next month that might make it harder for you to borrow again and you've got six months interest only left. Why not reach out to a broker before that rate rise? Okay, great tip. So I've got six months left of my interest only term. I can contact the bank today and and renew that uh, interest only term now. Or do I have it's to wait? It's a full credit decision. So you need to, um, you know, basically you do an internal refinance or you do an external refinance, yes. depending on what suits you best. But to extend that interest only term, it is a new credit decision. Um, generally, it's an internal refinance. But if you did that now and got another five years interest only, you were looking at today's rates, not next month's rates, assuming yeah. that they go up. Great. Okay. There you go. Awesome tip there. So let's say I've got a pre-approval for $500,000. I've got 90 days, which may be standard for that pre-approval term. What happens if I get rate rises during that pre-approval term? Is my servicing reduced or or is it still valid on the previous servicing that I got the pre-approval at? Oh, that depends on the lender. So that's something, especially for first home buyers, when we're doing pre-approvals, when we do that first comparison, it's rate, it's time for approval, but also the length that the pre-approval will hold for. Right. So some banks will reassess you every time there's a rate rise and some banks will allow that 90 days, that's firm. If you buy in that price range in the 90 days, you're good to go even if there is a rate rise. Okay. So you want to know how valid your pre-approval is before you go shopping. Awesome. So comes back to having an amazing broker. It, re- it really does. I say that a lot and I'm not trying to sell it as <laughs> no. me being the most amazing broker, but you need to have a broker that can give you those choices. Yeah, that knows the policies to say, well, yeah, if your interest rates rise during that term, your servicing is not affected. That's right. Yeah. Again, a side note, I get a bit rogue occasionally because there's things coming into my head, but tell me about a rate lock and how that works. So a rate lock is when is, is to do with fixed loans. So let's yep. say... and. Probably a lot more common when when fixed loans were a little bit lower than the variable, but let's say the variable rate might be 4.9 at the moment and the fix might be, say, 6%. Um, If you want to lock that fixed rate in, so you go and put your application in today and it's 6% for three years fixed, you pay a fee to the bank to hold that rate. And even if fixed rates go up, you will settle your loan at what the rate is today. Now, they change between banks what how much it costs to, to fix, to rate lock rather, and also if they will rate lock on pre-approval. A lot of banks won't rate lock pre-approvals. Until you find a property and know how much you're going to borrow, you can't lock the rate. So some clients will say, I want to rate lock, but they actually can't until they find a property. But some banks will allow a certain amount of days for a rate lock, right. even if you haven't found a property. Yeah, okay. And a side question to that construction loans, are they generally fixed for that period of the construction or are they do they remain variable? Mostly they're variable. So a few banks will let you fix in the construction 
top period, um, that's the, definitely the minority. Most banks, you need to be variable for the time that you're building. Okay. Yeah, because that's a factor. Well, has it would is. have been a factor. It would in have the last been. 12 it is, and it's something that we've recommended certain banks, um, especially last year, yeah. based on their ability to fix in the build. Yeah. How often do you have to meet with your team to say, look, this is how we need to be navigating through the the current climate? So my team and I meet every Thursday morning. We Mm. meet before work on a Thursday and we all talk about the clients that we're working with that week, where we're putting them and why. But I would meet with some of the brokers every day to talk about um, because it's an ever-changing climate right now. It's literally daily, isn't it? I would say I spend more time with my team than with clients right now. Wow. There you go. hope you like your team. I love them. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) So just finishing off on Matthew's question, talking about uh, refinancing to pay off a parental loan. Now, in the last few years, parental loans have have gained a lot of momentum and they're really cool. I love them. Um, Tell me about how we navigate through that for Matthew. So generally to release a parental guarantee, you need to be at the 80% level, but you also need to be able to still afford your loan. So you are going to have to have your employment at the time you release your parents. So it's just really important to make sure if you were going off to start a new job, let's look at getting your parents off first. Okay. So let's play that out for a moment. Matthew's got a a mortgage and next month he's looking at getting that LVR down to 80% so the, the parents can come off the mortgage, so to speak. Yes. They need to assess his income and make sure he's suitable to look after that loan. But wouldn't they have done that when he first got the loan? They did, but it was at a, at a different time. So at the time they assessed it, it was a different risk to the bank because there was the parents there backing them. Sure. But now he's going to stand alone as a borrower. So the bank need to check the security that they can release it and also the borrowing capacity. So recently we had to move a client whose parents wanted to be released because the valuation came in low right. at the bank they were with. They yes. wanted to just release, release the guarantee. We actually had to move them because yeah. the current bank didn't have a valuation high enough to release, release the parents. Yeah, but okay. every one of these steps is also a credit decision. So you need to show your um, your payslips. You need to have, have a well-conducted loan. I can't stress enough, when, especially if there's a guarantee there, to make sure those loans are perfectly conducted. Yeah, okay. No, that's great. Now, this one's actually probably I'll answer as well, but I'd love to get your thoughts, Rach. Um, Emma says, is it worth buying an investment property as a first home and sacrificing first home buyer grants? And I get this question a lot. She says, can't afford to buy where we rent in the beautiful Terrigal on the central coast right near us. I was there this morning, Emma. Wow, how good. And wouldn't be eligible for the grants here, so it it would require us to relocate to claim the benefits. Why would you want to leave Terrigal? Don't leave Terrigal, just invest. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the, like it's tongue in cheek, but it's going to be generally a better asset to go at a higher price point, generally speaking, isn't it? But people look at the first homeowner grants and say, well, I can I can avoid the stamp duty and, and or if I build or whatever, I might get some other concessions. Like the, we see the money on the table and say, well, I'm missing out on that by going in and buying a, a higher price point in a better location that's going to serve me better from a lifestyle point of view and maybe a growth point of view. That is a clarity call, Emma. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wasn't leading towards that, but what are your thoughts on that? Um, look, I, I started doing exactly what Emma's considering, which is I couldn't afford to buy on the coast 
when I lived here a long time ago, um, before it jumped up and I had to buy elsewhere to start my portfolio. Um, and I didn't want to leave where I lived. So it was, it actually worked out really well for me personally. So my, my opinion is that you would do what's best for your financial goals. And a lot of the time that isn't buying where you live. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So rent in Terrigal and buy somewhere else. Um, is what Rachel's saying without giving financial advice, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so Daniela says, if we want to refinance after two years fixed period, do we need to be at 20% equity to avoid paying LMI again? So presuming that she's paid it first time around, going in at maybe a 10% deposit, um, how do banks determine value? Send another valuation assessor, question mark. What if they value it lower than you bought it for if the market has now declined? Asking for a friend. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that's going to be relevant to a lot of people now. So generally, when you do refinance, there's not a lot of reason to refinance if you are over that 80% mark or over the 85% mark. Some lenders will do 85% with no mortgage insurance. But after that two-year fixed, um, generally your first point of call would be trying to negotiate again with your same lender if you are um, over 80% because you would incur lender's mortgage insurance again if that lender that you're going to, if, if they do value your property at a point that puts it over 80 or 85%, um, they will value the property again. Um, and sometimes you might pick a bank, Danielle, Daniela, based on what that valuation is. So you might have one bank that values it at 500 that would give you mortgage insurance and the next bank might value it at 550 and you mm. can refinance without mortgage insurance, get your sharp rate. So that could be a factor. Um, and you may be, you know, you might go back and see your broker and they might say, well, you know what, even though you're going to roll off this two-year fixed at, you know, 4.8%, 4. that's actually what we can get elsewhere in the market. So let's, there's no point in going through the whole process. Sure. Okay. So if you stayed at the same lender, I just want to reinforce this, would they charge you a second set of LMI? No. no. So you would roll off, generally you have a two-year fix, you naturally roll off to the, to the variable. It's really important to check your rate when you roll off. Um, a lot of the brokers will do that for you because you need to make sure that you're at a competitive variable and that you're not just rolling off to the standard variable. Yes. Most clients at the moment are sort of 2.5 to 2.7 below the standard variable. So even though that, you know, there's that 7% standard variable, clients are still getting 48 4.9%. Okay. So let's look at, at the current climate. There are a lot of Australians out there right now that are coming off fixed rates this year. And the fixed rates have been 1.8 to 2s, as I mentioned. And now it's going to default to a variable of somewhere in the fives, maybe uh, for, for your own rock and, and higher for investment. Yeah. So right now a rate should be in the fours if it's variable. Um, for owner OCK. For owner OCK, yep. principal and interest, your your home loan should start with a four. There you go, if, folks. Unless you've got a particularly high percentage of land or if you're in with a non-conforming lender or it's an investment property. So if you, an average loan should start with a four. But if you do... And this is before February's... Uh, reserve bank meeting If there is another reserve bank meeting. Um, But what you do want to do is make sure that you're negotiating the best rate that you can get at the moment. So a lot of people would come to us and they're on five and a half percent. They want to go down to 4.8, but they're not necessarily have to refinance to do that. It can just be a reprice with their bank. Sure. Okay. So fixed versus variable, what's happening out there in in, the lending land. Like I remember 12 months ago, the fixed rates being offered by a lot of lenders was was around 6%. Now, 
six percent doesn't look that bad for for investment at least. But where where do we see fixed rates now? Because that's sometimes an indicator of where the rates are going as well, isn't it? Because yeah, or at least money. where the banks where the banks think the rates are going to go. So when they set those four year fixed rates at two percent, they expected to make money on those. The economy recovered quicker than they thought. Yeah. So when they set these three year fixed rates at six percent, they are expecting to make money on that. Yes. I'm not saying that they will or won't, but that's what they think they will happen. So do the banks think that rates are going to be 8% next year? No, they don't. Or they wouldn't have a three-year fixed at 6%. Yeah. So I just put a one-year fixed in yesterday for 5.6. Right. Okay. Which was 0.8 above what the variable would, variable would have been. So they would really need to have, you know, three solid three rate rises. rises in a year for that to, to be worthwhile for them. Yeah. And, and for some people, that might actually work because – you might be sitting there not being able to sleep because we're just seeing rate rise after rate rise and it's and you've never been through it before and it's freaking you out and you maybe haven't got people in your corner saying it'll, it'll be okay. So you might be the person that takes that fixed rate on just for some certainty in your life because that's essentially what a fixed rate does. And, and most people fix for security of repayment rather than to try to beat the banks at their game. Yes. It is about knowing what you're going to pay for one, two, three, four or five years. Yeah, great. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I thought fixed rates would have been higher than that at the moment. Um, but yeah, that's that's surprising. So talk to me in, in finishing with the fixed rate stuff three years, like three, five-year fixed rates, like how far in advance can we can we fix our money for and what sort of rates are we looking at longer term? Yeah, so banks, um, they vary in, in what they, in what I guess what terms they will fix. I mean, some banks will fix for 10 years if you wanted to. I personally have never fixed a client for that long. It's because you really need to think about when you do fix, and this is something to talk to your broker about, when you talk about your goals and what your plans are, yep. you're not just locking a rate for that period of time. You're locking that loan in and it can be attached to the to a financial loss to the bank that you have to pay. So let's say you did fix for five years and you thought this rate's great. It's not going to, we're not going to lose money on this. But in two years time, for work reasons, something out of your control, you need to sell that home. You could be up for some very exorbitant fixed rate break fees. So that's why people generally fix for a, a shorter period of time or at least a period of time that they know what they're going to be doing. Um, the longest I've ever fixed a client for was seven years and that was a couple that were buying their owner-occupied home. They were in really stable jobs. Their family all lived in that area. They knew they were never selling that house. Yeah. But most people we ask a few questions about, hey, what could happen in this time? Yeah, and that's uh, down to having a relation with your mortgage broker that asks good questions. Not sure if this is in your wheelhouse or not, Rach, but um, Pia asks, red flags or reasons to avoid some of the online-only lenders like Athena, TikTok, Unloan, etc. Seems like a lot of brokers don't deal with them, but some of them have competitive rates. So is there another reason brokers don't deal with them or what to look out for with them? So before you answer this, uh, those online lenders, are they like considered second tier, third tier lenders? Are they are they reliable? What, what sort of... No, I, I mean, a lot of people that I've spoken to have gone to places like Athena and are, and are quite happy. I don't think there's a red flag not to use them. Yeah. I just think it's a different model. But your broker will still have the ability to work with really similar lenders. Mm. So I've got clients that might want to go to someone like Ubank. Um, that's a very similar bank, similar kind of rates. Um, it doesn't fit all of our clients, but the, some clients go there and they're very happy. Sure. Um, you know, you might have a 60% lend, you're both on, you know, really stable incomes and 
you don't have a lot of, you know, banking platform requirements. You go, great, that's going to be an excellent rate. We want to go there. That's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Um, but I still think you should sit down and look at all of those features and benefits of all the banks before you make a decision. But there's yeah. no red flags. They're not terrible lenders. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't classify them to be, um, yeah, like, yeah, to be a, a bad lender. Yeah, and I think because we don't see them in the media or they're not spoken about often and we all we hear is maybe the big four in a lot of cases, uh, it's it's very easy to form an opinion of them, isn't it? Yeah. So we use a lot of um, different different banks that aren't one of the majors too. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've said you bank a couple of times, but they do some great stuff. Mm. And um, if you're a digital kind of person, they're a really cool bank to use. But uh, for would they be suitable for a multiple investor? Absolutely not. Yeah. Would they be suitable for a mortgage insured loan? No. Yeah. Uh, We've got time for one more, I believe. So Ray says the term mortgage prison is becoming more common as interest rates increase, either with steadily increasing RBA cash rate being passed on or as fixed terms expire like we've spoken about before. Um, Is there any advice for clients to appeal to their lenders to break out of these mortgage prisons via internal refinance to reset loan terms where the lender's normal serviceability calculations would normally result in a decline to the client applicant? So what I can see here from Ray is that he might have had a loan for five years' time and his repayments are a certain amount of time because he's paying it off over the next 25 years. He would like to drag that out to 30 years to reduce his repayments, which makes sense because the repayments would be less. But the bank's saying no because you can't afford this loan now, even though he's paying more than what the repayments would be. And the bank can't approve it. They have to. They've they've got these guidelines they have to meet Mm. to say that you can afford a loan and if you're paying more, it doesn't give them the right to approve it on that basis. And right. it's really important for people to know that. Um, so you need to show that you can, I guess, afford the loan before your bank will let you draw out that loan term, which is really hard to explain sometimes, yeah. especially yeah. when it will put you in a better position. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are in a mortgage prison. And I think that a lot of people don't know yet. And in a few months time, when they go to do certain things, they're going to realise that they couldn't afford the loan that they got two or three years ago right now. Um, My coaching for my team this week has been about let's help people deal with the reality that we're sitting in now. So the coaching that I've been giving is get six months bank statements in for these clients that are calling. Um, We've got a system that they can go in and log their details in and we get six months statements and it categorises their spending. I don't think it's always stretching out your loan term that's going to be the solution, but looking at the things that you've put into your spending pattern while rates have been low, what can we do to help you reduce some of those extra costs? And it's a natural thing. Rates have been low. So we do go and get all these extras and are there things that we're going to have to peel back on. Yeah. So what we're saying for for Ray is, look, in a sense, nothing's changed out there internally. Externally, it's changed in terms of interest rates have risen, serviceability is reduced. uh, But but internally, as an investor or uh, a purchaser of property out there, we still need to factor in the same things. We need to know what comes in. We need to know what goes out. We need to have our personal buffers in our life. If we're buying an investment property, we need to understand factoring in vacancy rates, interest rate rises, all the associated costs with it. We need to, as an owner-occupier, need to understand that rates may rise. We need to factor in those buffers as well. Uh, We need to look at our own goals and aspirations and say, well, in three to five years, we may be having kids, so we need to factor in a little bit of that as well. We, We need to just be smart with our situation. 
That's right. And then just, yeah, we do have to adjust our sales to this current climate. Mm. And I suppose to give people some, not hope, but uh, motivation out there is everyone has a different version of what you're experiencing. But going back to the 18% interest rate days, and we don't want to harp on that because mortgage uh, loans were, were much lower back then. So it was a different picture. But we see ourselves through these times and we readjust and we, we get on with it. And I think when it comes to home mortgages, people, it's the last thing we want to give up. So it is, it we, is. We might give up that, that next dinner or the, the drink with friends or, or those, um, the, the clothes shopping day for, for six months or 12 months and then we get back on the horse because things uh, aren't going to fall over. That's right. I think it's important to note why the rates are going up. So why is the government putting up the rates right now? Why is the RBA raising? They're trying to slow inflation. Yes. And inflation's going to slow when people stop spending. Mm. So yes, things are getting tighter, but that's why it's getting tighter. This is actually their goal is to get people to say, well, I can't afford this or that yeah. anymore. And that will slow inflation. And that's what the goal is right now. Yeah. And, and without being a boring old economist, I think... Uh, a lot of economists say, well, inflation rates relative to interest rates. So track the inflation. If you can see inflation rate always on the increase, there's a good chance that uh, interest rates will, will do the same. If you can see inflation starting to come down, then the RBA and everyone at government level are, are happy to say, well, yeah, we can bring the interest rate down a little bit because people have stopped spending. But Gee, it's expensive out there in retail land, isn't it? Like- it is expensive and we've all had low rates so we're all getting all these things that we're enjoying spending our money on and it's hard to stop that. It is, yeah. But in any case, some discipline and motivation will, will get us through. But um, Rachel, it's been a pleasure. I've learned a couple of things today. There's some been amazing questions from the, from the Facebook group. So thank you to everyone who contributed. Apologies we couldn't get through them all, but we may wheel back around and, and do a, another episode on the property show because Rachel and her team at Sphere Home Loans do an amazing job and, uh, and we want to tap into their expertise on a, on a regular basis. Yeah, thank you, John. Thanks for having me. And if uh, anyone wants to reach out to you, what do we do? We can go to sort your money out click get help and then um, you can be hooked up with Rachel and her team. Excellent. Mm. All right. Thanks for tuning in. If you're a first time listener, uh, thank you for joining. And if you've been here a while, we thank you for your loyalty. Until next time. Ciao. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 